Welcome to another episode of Deadhead Space. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined by my friend Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And tonight we are joined by Preston Fossil. Say hello, hello. Preston. Hello. Uh, what got you into horror? Uh, I had uh, this weird relationship with horror from a very young age. Uh, my dad absolutely hates horror movies. My mom loves horror movies. Uh, and when I got older and really got into being a horror fan, that was something that she and I were able to share together. But it was my dad who got me into horror movies in the first place. Uh, there was this string of horror comedies mass marketed in the 80s, Beetlejuice, Ghostbusters, Monster Squad. And for whatever reason, my dad loved these movies and showed them to me at a very early age. And my initial response to all of them was just like absolute crippling terror. And then my follow-up response to that was, can we watch it again? And I would have the blanket over my head on the couch, just terrified of the Beetlejuice snake monster. Mm. And then would want to go back and just rewatch it. And as I got older, this weird pattern developed where I would want to watch something scary. I would want to read something scary. They had uh, Goosebumps books at my school and R.L. Yeah, Stein, of course, uh, the other guy, the other guy, not Christopher Pike. Crap. Uh, anyway. thinking, I can only think of like V.C. Andrews. No, it wasn't V.C. Andrews. They They did like these like almost like anthologies of like short stories. And I remember one on the cover, it's like a kid reading the book and it's like the cover of the book in his hands. And it's like this picture within a picture thing. And there's like this monster coming up from behind him on the bed. Uh, Anyway, I I would read these at school and then not be able to sleep at night. And my parents would put me to bed and I'd be up until like three o'clock in the morning, terrified. And then for the longest time, I wouldn't even want to go near these books. Uh, I wouldn't want to see anything remotely scary, anything even vaguely horror related. And then I'd start to get this urge again and go back to it. And as I got into my teenage years, I decided I didn't want anything to have that kind of power over me. I didn't want anything to be able to make me feel that vulnerable. And so I didn't realize at the time that this was basically what cognitive behavioral therapy is, but I, I essentially gave myself cognitive behavioral therapy. I went to Hollywood video, rented every horror movie I could get my hands on and just started binging them. And I was, my, my, my logic for this was if I just watch a whole bunch of it at once and give myself this massive dose at one time, it's going to rapidly desensitize you. And then you're not going to be afraid of horror media anymore. And one, it worked. And two, I realized this is really cool. And there's a lot of really great material out there and became this super obsessive horror fan around maybe 16, 17 years old and really have been since. Real quick, was it this one? No, he's he's in bed and he is uh, like kind of facing the viewer. And he's got the book like that, but the book he's holding is the book book that you're looking at and it's like this picture within a picture thing um i also saw fright uh uh not losing the name night frights that's it that's not it though either okay yeah maybe we'll find it later but um brennan why don't you take over because i'm rambling buddy 
I love the idea of um, like almost kind of subconsciously desensitizing yourself or maybe consciously desensitizing yourself. And, you know, I, I had read that you started off uh, telling us about how you would read the Goosebumps books and, you know, then kind of shy away from them for a little bit. But in at some point during your trips to Hollywood video or some video store, at least you kind of uh, developed the love of like grindhouse and exploitation movies. So what's the bridge between those two? How did you get there? <laughs> Okay, so this is a cool... Ah, I found it. Bruce Coville. Yes, Bruce Coville. Okay, Bruce Coville. that makes sense. The book and, and the book I'm thinking of is Bruce Coville's Book of Monsters. And it's this picture-in-a-picture thing. The kid is reading Bruce Coville's Book of Monsters. Holy shit. And I, feel is, like, I feel like I remember that. It, you, you get one of those moments where you see something, and you're like, I know that's from my past. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Bruce Coville. Yeah. That was the other that one. rings a bell. Yeah. That's a distinct uh, type of style of art, too, as opposed to, like, if you see a Goosebumps, you're like, that's, that's Stein. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those covers were great. Uh, even though it wasn't one of my favorites, Don't Go in the Basement, that hand's coming around the corner of the door. I've never forgotten that. And when somebody was, says, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I interrupted. I was just going to say my favorite was Horrorland. Oh, with the sign with the goblin yep. on it. Hold, yeah. Yeah. And the book was just fun. My my favorite was Welcome to Dead House. That was one of these that just absolutely scared the ever living crap out of me. That nightmare <laughs> she has where they're they're dead and they're sitting at the dinner table and eating uh I think bones. Uh that's that got me. That got me. But but whenever anybody says goosebumps now, just the knee-jerk image I get in my head is that hand from don't don't look in the basement or don't go in the basement. Don't look in the basement, don't go in the basement is a movie. Uh Oh, so uh, how I got into Grindhouse. So it's my local Hollywood video, which was my home away from home in high school. And and this wasn't considered weird either. I grew up in a place called Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And whatever went through your head when I said that is probably an accurate picture. And if you were a teen wanting to hang out and do something in Broken Arrow, you could go smoke behind the roadside indigenous people tobacco stand. And like people would congregate in the field there and smoke, or you could sit under an overpass and scream at cars, or you could go to somebody's house and get high, or you could go to the family friendly teen pool hall, which was like this attempt at basically being the max from Saved by the Bell. Is that what they <laughs> call that place? Uh, Sounds and familiar. Then, and then that shut down. And so you were, and so the other one was you went to the video store and you like hung out at the video store and talked about movies. And that, that was my haunt. And uh, I pretty much lived at the Hollywood Video and Broken Arrow on Washington. And there was this section at the back of the store that just was called Cult. And it was between the horror section and then like the main wall where they put the new releases. And Cult was like this catch-all where they put everything that they really weren't quite sure where to categorize or movies that might be off-putting to mainstream audiences if they were to find it in the right section. And so this is where I first saw Blue Velvet. This is where I first saw Todd Browning's Freaks. This is where I first saw Clockwork Orange. And it was seen to be kind of at the discretion of each individual Hollywood video what would go in the cult section because uh, when I moved to Texas and uh, Hollywood Video remained open for a couple of years, the cult section at the Hollywood Video on... Uh, not Woodlawn. 
always prided myself on remembering street names. It's going to sawdust. The uh, Hollywood video on sawdust. Uh, That's a in, street uh, name. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool name, man. Yeah, saw, sawdust. Texas. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> uh, yeah, because uh, where I lived with this place called the Woodlands, and it used to be a big logging region, and then they cleared out a bunch of the trees and made it this kind of uh, the word I'm looking for this kind of wannabe bougie suburb of houston and uh they, there was this uh cinemark where i worked uh in what the, this place called market street that was like this kind of like upscale shopping center and uh my brother and i got jobs working at the cinemark there because it was supposed to be an art house cinemark and they were supposed to get like obscure and foreign stuff and they, they really didn't they kind of pulled a fast one on the town with that one but uh we we wanted to work there because they show we're supposed to be showing like this stuff we couldn't see anywhere else and uh, in the woodlands, there was a road called Sawdust, and that is where both my optometrist and Hollywood video was. And uh, the Sawdust Hollywood video had a different cult section than the Washington Hollywood video back in Oklahoma. And I made it my goal that I was going to watch every single movie in the cult section because I started out with stuff like Blue Velvet, like Clockwork Orange, and it just like blew the mind of the 16-year-old living in semi-rural Oklahoma in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, you have to understand this place was functionally still in the John Hughes era. Uh, I drove through, my parents drove me through a cow pasture to go to high school every day. Uh, there were, there were road, there were two lane roads. Uh, and then in the early 2000s, they finally put a highway through and it exploded. And now it's like the fourth largest city in the state of Oklahoma. But at the time I was there, it was basically living in the 1980s. You go through my junior year high school yearbook and you've got kids wearing like the, the round tortoiseshell John Hughes eyeglasses. And so imagine that. And then I see Blue Velvet and it's like, holy shit, there's stuff like this out there. Uh, so this would have been either 2003 or 2004. I always mix up the dates because it was winter time. But this massive blizzard blows through and they're canceling school. And it's like six o'clock at night and it's pitch black outside and snow and sleet are coming down. And uh, Channel 6, which was the main television station in Tulsa, is basically acting like it's DEFCON 1. Uh, classes are canceled for like the next three days just based on how much it's snowing tonight. And so me being a 16, 17 year old dumbass, my first thought is, is I'm going to get in the car and drive to Hollywood video and rent a bunch of movies to watch over the next couple of days because it's going to be too cold to go outside. And so I brave the blizzard. It's sleeting. I drive out to Hollywood video. There's other kids from high school there too. They're doing the same thing. We're all dumbasses. And <laughs> I just go, go to the cult section to start snatching stuff up. And I'm not even really paying super much attention to what I'm going for. But one of the boxes is this lurid pastel colored. It looks like it's sun warped picture of a crying woman holding a dead Elvis impersonator in her arms. And it's called Heartbreak Motel. I've never and even heard of that one. And it's Shelly Winters. Mm. And it's like, I've got to rent this because it's a Shelley Winters movie, but it's in the cult section and she's holding a dead Elvis impersonator. And I cannot recommend this movie. It is one of the most morally reprehensible things I have ever seen. It is about a black jazz musician who 
decides to go on a road trip through the American deep South in the 1960s oh and breaks down at a roadside motel. And you can probably fill in some of the blanks there. It is, it is indefensible. It is indefensible, but it's got Shelly Winters in it. The jazz musician is Leslie Uggams. Ted Cassidy lurched from the original Adams family is in this. And it's like, where the hell did this come from? And why did these people make this movie? And it's like you're making up that that whole cast. I know you're not, but it just seems like you're pulling names like kind of famous, but not famous enough where you're like, that's horseshit. (laughs) So I decide I've got to find out where this came from because it's just surreal that this exists. And this is the early days of the internet. Uh, I think that I looked this up on like Alta Vista. I don't even think I went to Google. And uh, the only search result that I could find for this movie was a reference in a book called Sleazoid Express by a married couple named Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford. And it's like, okay, I guess I'm buying this book because I've got to know. And one, the answer turned out to be the mafia. Uh, That movie exists because of the mafia. It was a money laundering scam. And that's how those people ended up in the movie is that they were paid substantial sums of money under the table in cash. And two, this book blows my mind. Uh, So the Sleazoid Express book is about 42nd Street, New York in the 1970s and 80s. And Bill Landis was a journalist who lived there and who printed a magazine also called Sleazoid Express between 1980 and 1985. And what he would do was he would stay up all night just theater hopping, going to every single grindhouse theater on 42nd street and then writing up the movies he saw there but then also talking about the people who went to see the movies (laughs) this is the pose days of times square and new york okay and a lot of these theaters served as social hubs for groups of people that didn't really have any other place to congregate and so there were movie theaters that were hangouts for the drag community and there were movie theaters that were hangouts for uh gay sex workers and there were movie theaters that were hangouts for straight sex workers and there were movie theaters that were hangouts for guys who lived this nine to five don draper madman existence in the city in uh, the suburbs but wanted to indulge their freak side And there were these entire subcultures of people that built up around these different theaters and the movies that they showed. And Bill documented all of that in the original Sleazoid magazine. And then years later, uh, the Sleazoid book is the sort of greatest hits slash retrospective. And going back to what I said about Blue Velvet, for this, you know, teenage kid in rural Oklahoma to find out about this, like, kingdom of the damned that existed long, long ago in a time and place far, far away, and it's all built around movie theaters, was just amazing to me. That just flipped my shit. And from that point forward, I did everything I could to read everything I could get my hands on about exploitation cinema, watch every exploitation cinema I could get my hands on. Uh, This was the pre-Vinegar Syndrome, pre-Severin, pre-Arrow days of DVD re-releasing houses. So I was having to, you know, get DVD-R burned discs from some dude who was living in his mom's basement in Iowa And I had uh, this guy who was actually in the U.S. Army and stationed in Japan, and he would pirate Japanese movies and then slip them into the United States via his sister, and she would distribute stuff for him. And I, like, 
joke that I had like these spy level networks of people feeding me out of print exploitation movies on the gray markets. And, uh, you know, it's something that I've been uh, enamored with ever since. Did you expect any of that for a reply? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, not not, not when I asked the question like 10 minutes ago, but you know what? That's it's perfect. It's perfect. Holy shit. I I want to come back. I want to come back to the 42nd street thing for obvious reasons, but um, I'm kind of curious in indulging that kind of cult, um, you know, video, you know what, man, I'm just going to call it an obsession. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's fair. In rural Oklahoma was there, you know, side eyes and, you know, conservative surroundings kind of, um, I guess, not blacklisting you, but like uh, uh, the words, they're escaping me. It's been a long week, but you know, judging ostracize, you, yeah, ostracize works. Yeah. I came from an interfaith Catholic Jewish family. I was already ostracized. What I watched didn't matter. I was already going to hell. So uh, that was never really a concern. Uh, I didn't hear the horror movies are going to take you to hell line until I was working in uh, a rural suburb of Houston in the 2010s. Uh, There was a super conservative area there, and that's where I did not really talk about horror movies. Uh, But, you know, I had my my very, very, very small circle of friends in Oklahoma and my brother, and they knew this is what I was into. And as long as I stayed away from everybody else and they stayed away from me, everybody was happy. Now, one more thing I did want to throw out, apropos of nothing. Uh, I worked through, um, Preston, I think you and I are just about the same age, and I worked uh, through college at Hollywood Video before they went out of business in Massachusetts in Rhode Island. And I got such a kick out of hearing you talk about, you know, running out there right before the blizzard. I will never get over how many people would show up because Hollywood video was infamous for being open 365 days a year, no matter what you can get your fucking video rentals. Um, I will never get over the people who would show up at the peak of a blizzard in the worst weather and just like barge in that door with like the winds at their back and tell you, Oh, they just want to pick something up because you know, they're going to be snowed in. And it's like, if you're not snowed in now, like you're not, it's not going to happen. You're fine. You can go, (laughs) go about your business. Uh, I just wanted to drop that little nugget, but uh, Patrick, I'm going to throw it to you. Random, but thinking back, what movie, like what horror movie can I think of what kind of got me into everything? It wasn't as extreme, but it was Tom Savini's 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead. Um, And it was packed full of bonus material. So it was really cool seeing how like the stuff they cut out that was too extreme for even then. I know one was a headshot and, my godfather is a was a uh, independent uh, was on the greater Boston area uh, um, for the acting scene, and he said, "Watch a commentary behind the scenes. You'll learn a lot of things, um, and it can apply to writing or whatever uh, art you're doing." And um, Tom Savini said two things. The first thing was uh, he cuts to the opening scene where Bill Mosley's talking to Barbara. And he said, "Over here, you're showing them what you want them to look at." And then you surprise them here, you know, on the other side. I'm like, that's good. That can apply in a lot of ways. The second thing was Savini wanted to do this headshot scene where a zombie gets up on 
the bit of a pickup, I believe it was. Shotgun blows his head, blows his head apart. And I think it was that he couldn't get it right. And he goes, you know what? Us not showing it actually paid off because whatever you are thinking is going to be 10 times worse. And, and that's that's exactly why Scarface, Al Pacino Scarface in the 80s got the X-rating because <laughs> of the shower scene. Um mm-hmm. All that to say, uh, your love for horror and, and movies is really fascinating. It's really interesting just um, just hearing you talk about it in general, but besides uh, 42nd Street. But, um, Brennan, I think now's a good time to jump into that book, and then we can see where we go from that. Um, do you want to lead that part, maybe, or maybe Preston jumps into it with us now, so we don't butcher it? So uh, Beast of 42nd Street is uh, set between two time periods, uh, 1965 and 1977, uh, New York City and Times Square. And it follows the life of a dissolute theater projectionist named Andy Liu. And when we first meet him in 1977, for several years, he has been in possession of a film, real of film with which he has become obsessed. And all of his waking time not spent working as the projectionist at the Colossus Theater, he spends attempting to identify the woman in this movie. And I wrote the book as a horror neo-noir because the book is centered around two different mysteries, or three different mysteries, actually. Where did Andy get the reel of film? What's on the reel of film? And then at the outset of the book, Andy is approached by the New York City police who inform him that his long missing brother has finally turned up and he has turned up dead and is now the subject of a murder investigation. And Andy becomes fixated on trying to discover who the woman in the real is while also figuring out a way to escape New York City. And as more and more people come into Andy's orbit and see this film for themselves, it obsesses everyone who watches it. Andy finds himself in competition with the 1970s New York underground jockeying for possession of this reel of film. And as the book goes on and we flash back to the 1960s, the layers of these different mysteries begin to get peeled back and readers learn the answers to all of them. Why don't you tell us what the significance of 42nd Street is for people that aren't aware of it? So between so back in the post-World War II era, 42nd Street was a uh, theater district in New York. They built these grand, they called them the movie palaces. And they were the, the, the fanciest movie theaters that you can conceptualize. The nicest AMC, the nicest Alamo Drafthouse, Cinemark that you've been into today looks like a skid row dive compared to the movie palaces back in their heyday and uh after the after you listen to this podcast go out and google uh 42nd street theaters the roxy uh the lyric uh what else what are the names each chapter in sleaze what expresses a theater name why the hell can't i remember these bloodthirsty butchers at the lyric the Anko, A-N-C-O, and you, you look at the inside of these things, and I mean, like, velvet curtains on the walls, and, like, gold wow. molding, and, like, what at the time were super giant screens, and uh, just really opulent. They they looked like opera houses. They basically took the design of what you think of as your your stereotypical opera house, and they plunked a movie screen in it. And these theaters were geared towards this generation of post-war prosperity uh, 
all these guys coming back and entering the workforce after the war who had all of this disposable income. And these theaters catered to, you know, the suit and tie, straight laced, square John Casablanca crowd. And then something interesting happens. TV comes around and TV becomes the predominant force in American life. And people stop going to 42nd Street. And so these theaters, in order to survive, start catering to more prurient tastes. And they start showing instead of these, you know, nice, classy, austere, black and white Hollywood movies. Now you've got Russ Meyer movies. You've got uh, the immoral Mr. T's about this guy who imagines everybody with their clothes off. And you've got movies like this one called Mom and Dad. And the gimmick was a guy in a lab coat would greet you at the door and claim to be a doctor and would say, this is not an adult film. This is an educational film about the circle of life and how babies are made. Uh, And as time goes on and sleazier and sleazier material becomes available, that's what starts to play the theaters on 42nd Street. And the weirder, the nastier, the more subversive, the more you cannot show this on television in the 1960s, the 1970s, it's playing on 42nd Street. And as a result of this, this is where 42nd Street starts to become this center of Manhattan nightlife for the people who don't necessarily fit into the mold for what's an American individual is supposed to be in the Kennedy era in the early Nixon era. Uh, This is where the square pegs go because they don't fit it into the round holes of the rest of New York life. And so 42nd street becomes a byword both for uh, counterculture in New York, as well as exploitation, horror and underground cinema. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. You should write a nonfiction book about this. I have. <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, <laughs> <I'm just joking. laughs> uh, so anyway, Beasts of 42nd Street is my uh, latest novel. It's uh, coming out from Cemetery Dance. Uh, by the time you listen to this, it will have come out from Cemetery Dance. Uh, Congrats, and it, by the way. Very thank cool. you very much. Yeah, yeah, I'm really excited. I could not be happier. Uh, I wanted them to publish this. They were my first choice. And it's a really cool story. I submitted it to them. And I didn't hear anything for forever. Uh, I had originally written this book when I was back at the publisher that originally put out Her Lady of the Inferno, and that had done better than anybody expected for a book that I pitched as Flashdance Meets Silence of the Lambs. And uh, so my publisher at the time said, you know, this did good. You've got carte blanche. Write whatever you want. No restrictions. We want to put out a raw, uncensored, unfiltered, pressed and fossil original. And I was like, okay, cool. And I wrote Beasts to 42nd Street, and they liked it, and then they went out of business. And so here I had this book, and it had been going out for blurbs, and it had fantastic blurbs. Bloody Disgusting loved it. The AV Club loved it. Uh, other horror writers loved it. And I thought to myself, you have got every door open in front of you. Just go someplace and pitch this thing. Very first place I pitched for Cemetery Dance. I didn't hear back from them. I figure, okay, that's a no-go. I start shopping it around other places. And there's kind of this uniform across the board response, which is, this is great, and I won't touch with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> uh, the one response that I got that stuck in my head was, what, what, what was it? This is too tonally upsetting and disturbing. 
That makes sense. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, in the middle of this, uh, another horror writer was really great. And he actually set me up uh, with his agents to read my book for potential uh, representation uh, or at the very least to point me in the right direction. And uh, he read it and he said, I handle PG-13 horror. This is NC-17 horror. But, uh, you know, so-and-so is explaining your situation. I feel bad for you. Let me get on the phone and just kind of like talk to you about the state of contemporary horror. And he very enlightening. And he said, you know, in the publishing world, uh, you know, horror kind of comes behind fantasy, behind sci-fi, behind romance. It is this very kind of marginalized niche genre. And it is dominated by Stephen King and to a lesser extent, Dean Koontz. And that makes up like the substantial portion of the market share. And as a result of this, publishers want to try and keep the content and tone of horror closer to that. And he says it's not impossible to shop something like this, but it's very difficult. And now this was several years ago, I think with the success of stuff like uh, Manhunt more recently, uh, that this is probably going to be changing mm -hmm. and that horror is getting more subversive and grimier and transgressive. And that, that's why that's what I wrote. Uh, I wanted to write something that was a throwback to 1980s splatterpunk style, socially conscious yet transgressive and confrontational horror. And I feel like that's coming back now, but it's something that's in the process of coming back. Anyway, just, flash forward. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just wanted to point out, uh, we're talking about Gretchen Felker Martin's Manhunt, right? Yes. Yeah. From tour. Yeah. Uh, just for whoever's listening, they're like, oh, what is that? It's worth checking out. Yeah, and that's I think was a uh, a rallying cry in that style of horror getting back into the mainstream, where you can go into a Barnes and Noble or a Target in Middle America and buy a book where dudes are getting their balls chopped off. Uh, that's seven printings so far. I th I think it was seven. Yeah, so that's uh, she really like opened the doors there. Yeah, uh, there. So uh, flash forward a couple of years, I've been shopping this thing for two years. Whoa. And I have a publisher who will print it, but they're very upfront with me. We're really getting up off the ground. And we know that you wrote this for a bigger place. And we know that you really want this to be something. And where we're at right now, we may not be able to do that. But if all else fails, we will give you a home. And I'm getting ready to take this plunge. And I contact Brian Keene. Uh, there's a period where I just met like tons of people in the horror community through social media. And I'll still like log onto my Facebook and Twitter and like see somebody who I'm like seeing all of their posts. And I'm like, who the hell is this person? Uh, and I, I can't remember how Brian and I first got acquainted. It is a fog to me. Uh, but I just knew that he was a, a really great guy and an advocate for uh, horror writers and that he was somebody Kind of the, the the Saint Jude of the horror community, like you know the 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 patron of uh, impossible cases. And I went to Brian and I said, you know, here's my situation. And uh, he he took a look at the book and he said, here's the direct contact for somebody at Cemetery Dance. I want you to email them and tell them that I sent you, and that I think that this is the perfect book for them. Damn. And I yeah, it was yeah. He is one of the heroes of the story of this book. And, yeah. you know, so <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah. So two years later, here I am back at the very first place I submitted it to. 
And what had happened was uh, their acquisitions editor was outgoing. He was retiring from the company. He'd been with them, I think, since the very beginning back in the 80s and was just ready to move on to a new stage of his life. And in the process of that, Beast of 42nd Street had ended up at the bottom of the slush pile. And their new acquisitions editor was a guy named Kevin Lucia. And I find myself talking to him and he finds the manuscript for Beasts unopened in the inbox. And he tells me he's going to read it. And three weeks later, he emails me and he says, I want this. Uh, Cemetery Dance is indeed the home for this book. And so that's that's how I ended up there. And I'm, I'm really happy that like my first choice is the one who's actually putting it out. That's wonderful. Kevin's a good guy. This has actually been in the works now for about 18 months. I want to say that I first got into contact with Kevin in late 2021, very early 2022. So it's like been a long time. I can't remember who the who the old person was. Really cool seeing Kevin take over. He's very, you know, right off the bat showing how excited he was and he's, he's doing good. I know. He's great to work with. Yeah. Um that's a really cool story because it took it took two years, but like that's it's who you wanted it to be with. Yeah. So that's wonderful. Brennan, do you have anything to throw in there? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that you kind of wrote it slash saw it as a throwback to the 80s splatterpunk. I know Patrick and I just we both independently kind of came at it and said, this has a little bit of David Scow in it. Oh, yeah. Um and I wonder, you know, if David was an influence and if he was or if he wasn't, you know, who are some other writers from that era that you wanted to do a little homage to in this in this story? It's trying to find I've still got my two copies of the Splatterpunks anthology over in this bookshelf somewhere. I was trying to whip them out, but they're they're buried in my piles. Uh, the uh, the original Splatterpunks anthology, which I got from a guy who was one of my horror movie buddies in Tulsa that I traded him a copy of Clive Barker's In the Flesh for, and then, then the follow-up one. Probably the major one, uh, Joe Lansdale, specifically The Night They Missed the Horror Show. Uh, that was just, I've probably said, blew my mind way too many times during the course of this podcast, but it did. It like really blew my mind. It just like it struck a nerve for me. Um What's it called? It's a novella. I believe it's in the second Splatterpunks for You the Living about this zombie apocalypse. And it's set in Chicago. And the the conceit of the story is that it is uh, basically like the extended suicide note of this guy who has uh, been surviving the zombie apocalypse in Chicago. Hold on a second. I've got to figure this out now. Where are you Splatterpunks books? Here we are. Then Splatterpunks 2? I believe so. It's definitely called For You the Living. Just to prove I've actually got it. What was that Joe Lansdale one called? The Night They What? Oh, The Night They Missed the Horror Show? Yeah, Night They Missed the Horror Show. From a collection edited by David J. Shaw. So I guess, yes, he was was an indirect influence. Oh, Less Than Zombie, that's a great one by Douglas E. Winter. He nails Brett Easton Ellis' voice. It reads like Brett Easton Ellis writing a uh, post-apocalypse story. That's that's a great one. Meat House Man, oh my God, Meat House Man by George R. R. Martin. Uh, 
a lot of people don't know that George R. R. Martin wrote this really grimy horror story that's also just like super weirdly touching it's like set in this future where after you die corpses are repurposed and like fitted with uh cybernetics and used for different types of manual labor and this guy is like i think it's on the moon he's a miner and he like operates the mining corpses and then in his off time goes to this whorehouse where the bodies where the where the sex workers are these corpses with cybernetics in them and it's this guy attempting to live like a normal life and like find romance while also becoming psychologically addicted to going to these brothels with bodies in them and it's really gnarly and it's the game of thrones guy um (laughs) gnarly's right (laughs) i have not i have not read that one i gotta read that i know he did horror i didn't know he wrote something like that but Guess it makes sense. Uh, Wayne Allen Sally did for know. you the living. I don't know who that is. That's a great one. I know Douglas C. Winner winners. But uh yeah, the two the two Splatterpunks anthologies, super formational for me and this uh type of horror that I enjoy and write and uh what's what's influ- influential and inspir in, in- Inspirational for me. Nice. Yeah, I've never, I can't believe I've never heard of those anthologies before. I had never either. And I was talking about exploitation movies to this guy, Jeremy, uh, that I knew back when I was in high school. And he was like, the movies that you like, you want to read this anthology I've got. <laughs> and I, I traded him this Clive Barker book for it. And I was like, oh, yes. That's amazing. So it hasn't come out yet. But it'll be newly out when this is released. So I, I, I I'm gonna be very careful how I talk about it because we try not to spoil it. And unless the author is flat out like, like we had Caitlin Marceau on last episode, she's like, "Fuck it, I'll, I'll spoil the ending." So unless an author says that, we're not going to. Um, but Brennan, I'm gonna be stealing your questions, so you better ask this before I do. Do you want to ask the question about uh, Andy Lou? Well, in general, I guess, um, yeah, I'm actually kind of I want to I want to piggyback Preston off what you said about horror potentially finding its way into a more grimy and subversive narrative uh, and a little bit away from I don't want to say cookie cutter, but basically just trying new things. Um, there's 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 just there's a constant debate, it seems, about whether or not stories and uh, even horror in general need likable characters. And I would love to hear you weigh in on this. Of course it doesn't. (laughs) Uh, They need to be interesting. You need to be invested in following them. But uh, I feel that that places restrictions on the kinds of stories you can tell if you're necessarily have to have likable characters uh and you know here we get into kind of that whole golden age of television uh you know the sopranos tony soprano is a guy who kills people for money 
uh, Walter White is a guy who ruins his family's life for his own ego and like ravages entire communities so that he can be Heisenberg. What about Seinfeld? Uh, it's like the funny one of the funniest shows ever. Yes, and they're, and they're all ter- yeah, they're all douchebags. <laughs> they're terrible people. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. The people oh my god, South like, Park. Go yeah, on. Go yeah. On. And, you know, the people in It's Always Sunny are like two steps above being Trevor Phillips from Grand Theft Auto. Speaking of which, everybody loves Grand Theft Auto 5. Who's their favorite character in Grand Theft Auto 5? It's not Michael. Some people it's Franklin. Most people, it's Trevor, the meth head psychopath who lives in a rat trap in the deserts and goes on killing sprees. They don't have to be likable. They have to be interesting. Rob Zombie's Uh, Firefly family. That's the one I had to get up here. House of a Thousand Corpses, going back to like this be horror being oh. something that I could share with my mom. I went to see House of a Thousand Corpses opening night at the Tulsa Cinemark, and my mom asked me, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to go see this movie. It's called House of a Thousand Corpses. And my mom's immediate response was, that sounds really awesome. And me and my mom ended up going and see House of a Thousand Corpses and opening night and just loving it. That's fucking awesome. And Rain Wilson's in it, pre-Dwight. I never caught that until there's, I think there's like an episode of the office and I can't remember why, but something just like clicked in my head. And it's like this (laughs) joke that like, it occurs like years later. I'm just like, that's the guy who gets turned into a Fiji mermaid. Yeah. And so actually, this was kind of one of my personal mandates with this. This was part of this very poorly defined manifesto I had in writing the book. And one of the ways that I wanted to be transgressive was that I was going to intentionally write an unlikable main character. And that good. He, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. And that he was going to be repulsive and repugnant and off-putting and exactly the guy that you would not want to have sit down next to you on public transport and then i wanted you to just get hooked into knowing what this guy was going to do next no matter how much he put to you it in a unsafe feeling headspace hmm. john skip um because we've talked about splatterpunks <clears throat> um oh god i'm forgetting his last book brandon on top of your head do you remember the last book he put out it was don't push the button. Okay, thank you. Yeah, don't push the button through Clash Books. See, um, he wrote a book about this. It's an it's a collection, and uh, one of the stories is about this uh, group, this band. Um, they're just they're uh, skinheads, I believe. I could be wrong, but they're of that extent of racism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and John said that one night he, because I, I Brian, one of us asked a question said i uh ended up in that position um these guys liked me i got along with them at a bar and i didn't know until after they took me out very far to this desert at their place that that's who they were so i he he didn't go along with it but he was just not very uh vocal and um he just kind of observed them and <laughs> it's really interesting like why do we have an obsession with true crime? It's because we can't contemplate what, like we grew me and Brennan grew up in Massachusetts and, and one of one kind of obsessive character in that area. And I think now globally is what, Whitey Bulger when he was alive. Yeah. Cause he's a psychopath, man. And you can't imagine being like that. Like how, why does that brain work? So going back to Andy, Andrew Lou, Andy Lou, um, it's better to read about someone like that 
or watch it on film and kind of explore those areas than actually being with him. Um, did you bring any real life experience with someone like that? Oh yeah. So um, there was a big punk underground in Tulsa in the late nineties and early two thousands. And I'm not sure if it's around anymore. I really stopped going back to visit Tulsa around 2013. Uh, I don't. I went back one more time just for a couple of days to see my brother in seventeen, and I haven't been back since. But back in the day, there was a huge punk underground scene there, and this buddy of me and my brothers from high school fell in with it. And talking about Breaking Bad, this kid was like the consummate example of the straight-laced middle American wasp honor students whose parents just pushed and pushed and pushed until he snapped back okay. uh he graduated early uh moved out of the house uh got his own apartment got like a five-figure job in it like out of high school i still don't know how the hell he managed that it was some kind of like data entry position where at like 17 18 years old he was already making like 25 grand a year and he as part of his whole subversive screw you mom and dad's new approach to life starts hanging out in the Tulsa punk underground and sank in deep and turned his apartment into a punk squad. Uh, it started out with like this one guy asking to crash there. Wait, what is and that? Then that, uh, that is just like some place where like punks who don't have any other place to go, go to hang out, listen to music, do drugs oh, and just yeah jesus christ yeah okay. and so a, a lot of the times they're homeless and a lot of these these people were a lot of them were uh runaways from home uh and they'd been like living on the streets for years and you know they they hadn't had a like home life since they were 16 and they were like 18 19 years old now and this apartment just degenerated and the description that you read of andy's apartment in the book minus the photos on the walls is just what jacob's apartment ended up looking like and i even cleaned it up a little bit for the book because Ooh. there was a certain point where i read the accurate description and i was like people are not gonna believe that anybody could actually live like this but they were and oh it was God. disgusting the very left and, and jacob like andy ended up with the intravenous drug problem uh because it was just floating around everywhere and he got to a point where he started asking them to contribute to the household and the way they decided they were going to contribute to the household was they were going to give him free heroin uh and one of the one of the guys there i still don't know how this works he somehow had a hookup at a hospital and was like getting morphine out of the hospital and it's like they were just doing straight morphine oh my uh, god and what like, what do they have? Uh, what, what are they? G, G was it? G men? His World War II soldiers were hooked on that shit too. Yeah, yeah. And so it was it was a bad scene. And like one time, my brother and I went over there, and it was like something out of Train Spotting with like just all these guys like strewn around on the ground with you know God. needles in their arms and shit. I mean, we were like 17, 18 years old. We didn't know how to respond to this. Uh, neither of us had seen anything like this before. Uh, I don't know so, how I'd respond to that as a 34-year-old man. I'd be yeah. really just, I wouldn't want to step on the wrong area, you know? And they 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 had stopped throwing the garbage out because they were strung out. They would just like tie off a hefty bag and just like pull it out of the trash can and just toss it in the living room. And there was like piles of garbage all over the place. 
Uh, the water had gotten turned off for non-payment, but they kept using the toilet. Uh, it was just oh. vile. And uh, I, I, I took a lot of that for Andy and the idea of this person who comes from straight American society and just like completely loses themselves to this. Uh, another aspect of Andy was my own sort of worst case scenario for myself. Uh, when I very first conceptualized the character, uh, he started life as a minor character in the short stories about 42nd Street that I would write for my uh, college's literary magazine. And when I first came up with him, uh, I recently moved to Texas. Uh, my brother had moved out of the house. He was really my best friend. Uh, I had gone through a uh, an amicable but still sad breakup. Uh, and then my mother got diagnosed with leukemia and got put into isolation at MD Anderson uh, Cancer Hospital in Houston. Thankfully, she's still with us, but you know, I didn't know that at the time. And my dad's working like 12-hour shifts to try and make extra money. Uh, I'm going to school and working almost full-time to try and make extra cash myself. And I've got no social life. And uh, I'm working late shifts at the theater and getting home at like, you know, one o'clock in the morning, functionally all by myself. Dad's asleep by this point. Mom's in the hospital. I don't have any friends. And I had gotten to the whole Travis Bickle thing. I was a uh, I was the a projectionist there uh, back when they still use film, uh, which is why I gave Andy the job of projectionist at the theater. And I had turned a theater standee from... Uh, was it the Darjeeling Limited? I had turned some theater standee into like an exercise mat for myself up in the projector booth. And I had was doing the whole like 50 sit-ups every night, 50 push-ups every morning. And it got, got down to like 160 pounds and a five foot eleven frame and was like really creepily white and pale. And I remember the moment that the seed of Andy was born. I got home. I had helped the ushers throw garbage out that night. The bag had broken. I gotten covered in like soda runoff and popcorn butter. And we had a spare bedroom in the house where the computer was, where I also kept my uh, bookshelf with my movies on it. Mm. And I just flopped down in this desk chair. I'm exhausted, but to that point where I'm too tired to sleep, I feel completely alone in the world. Oh, and I man. look at the shelf. And it's all horror and exploitation movies. It's pretty much all I was watching at this point in my life. And that was a point of contention in the relationship I had been in was that my girlfriend at the time thought that was a little bit off-putting. And, you know, she thought to herself, what does it say about somebody that this is all they watch? And that, like, he goes home every night and watches movies where people are getting chopped up and they're in pain and, you know, getting mutilated. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, one, she's right. And two, what am I going to become? And kind of the genesis of Andy was a sort of worst case scenario for myself. And as I developed the character, I fused that with me and my brother's friend from high school. And then when I was writing the book, uh, was kind of at the fever pitch of the, uh, what was the second Star Wars movie in the sequel Empire. trilogy? No, 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 the sequels. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Clone Wars. Of course, uh no 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 the uh last jedi clones. last jedi uh oh the sequel i'm sorry yeah 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 yeah, yeah with, my uh, bad. with daisy ridley yeah and this was kind of at the fever pitch of that coming out and like people just going absolutely batshit over it on twitter and also kind of at the fever pitch of like the the toxic rick and morty fandom yeah uh that and funny just, as hell. 
Yeah. I mean, I love the show, but for a while there, I wasn't telling people I was a fan of the show because you'd log on to Twitter and it'd be like, I heard they're letting women into the writer's room at Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty is a dude show. You can't let women into the writer's room at Rick and Morty. Fuck that shit. Yeah. Uh, fucking idiots, man. Yeah. And uh, the, this idea that like, because you are a fan of something that you inherently own it. And mm. also Dallas has this great revival theater, the Texas theater. It's where they arrested Lee Harvey Oswald after the Kennedy assassination. And they, uh, they reopened it, they restored it and they do 35 millimeter screenings there. And it's great on paper, but the crowd that it attracts are these obnoxious entitled hipsters who show up to heckle the movies yep. and you go to see a uh, 35 millimeter restoration of Alejandro Hodorowsky Santa Sangre. Uh, you go to see a uh, restoration from, I think Janus films of uh, the passion of Joan of Arc. Hmm. Uh, and you've got people making fun of it. And it's like oh. making like mystery <laughs> science theater, 3000 style, like running gags at these art house films. I mean, it will never forget one year. I'm so pissed about this to this day. For my birthday, my wife took me to see a restoration of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on 35. I had only ever seen that movie on DVD or like a super torn up VHS. And I didn't know that that picture could be so clear or that, it, that the sky looks so blue in that tracking shot going under the swing. And every single time Leatherface killed somebody, the couple behind us made orgasm sounds and hooted like apes. Who the hell does that at the screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? And so I'm thinking to myself, writing the story, Andy and his world is the perfect place to examine these two spec ends of the spectrum of fans who ruin media for everybody else. I don't like people that, you know, are just so fucking rude. I just want to slap them all. I won't. Just to be very clear, because I don't want to get arrested <laughs> for <to>. slapping. <laughs> Come on, man! If you slap a guy across the face, you, you could get you could get assault charges. And that's how Pat ruined his podcast career. <laughs> <laughs> Brennan, jump in, brother. <laughs> no, I think that's I think that's very very interesting the idea of being able to kind of dissect like what kind of drives a person to that and you're absolutely right is the, the I, I don't know what spurred it on the whole idea of fandoms feeling like they are entitled to ownership but you're 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 absolutely correct that it does seem like it if not peaked took off with that the the last jedi thing like that's not what we wanted to happen and now we're furious about it and it almost seems like that's been the prevailing attitude of almost every ip since um it doesn't do exactly what i wanted it to do ergo it's not good art um i like the sequel trilogy i like the okay. original trilogy <laughs> the, pre the, the prequels the sequels i like the original trilogy and rogue one. Oh, rogue and one's amazing other mm -hmm. than that i have no comments of the star wars films <laughs> well what okay it's not a film but the mandalorian is pretty amazing man i keep hearing good things about that but i just can't make the commitment that's all right my wife's not a star wars fan as this helps and she she enjoys that movie uh, that show 
anyways, Brennan, I'm not winning this this one. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay I'll, I'll i'll lead into something and then you can interrupt me with a weird segue to nothing <laughs> i'll shut the fuck up gotcha <laughs> um so i i mean i wonder if you have any opinion on why that is why why it is that you know is, is it twitter is it just the internet age is it some other societal change that just gives fans of media that sense of entitlement that they seem to have nowadays Twitter's definitely components of it. Uh, I hate Twitter more than anything on this earth, but I mean, you cannot be in entertainment without Twitter now. It is the great necessary evil of being an artist in the 21st century. Uh, but uh, my my editor-in-chief at uh, Daily Grindhouse, where I, I am the managing editor, once said Twitter is like having instant access to everybody in the world's high school diary. And he was Ooh. so right. Uh, humanity was not ready for Twitter. Uh, my brother was in town recently, and he and I had this conversation that technology evolved too quickly over the course of a couple of years, and that's having this broadly negative effect on humanity because we were not allowed to evolve along with it, and that we've got, you know, maybe me like. <clears throat> excuse me, 30th century technology in the 20th century, and we're still catching up. Mm. Uh, so that's definitely a factor. Uh, where I really saw it happening, and I think it's spread out from here, is that a lot of the media that had this happen around it, like uh, like Star Wars, started out as this kind of niche thing. Like the original Star Wars movie, the original trilogy was like this this huge thing, but it was like also associated with like nerd culture and like this thing that like you know the the, the not cool kids in school could rally around. Uh, video games, especially. I really think maybe the dawn of this was Gamergate, maybe. And at this one point in time... What is that? Oh, the, all the, this this lady wrote this article about, like, there's not really a lot of female video game characters, and you've got Lara Croft with, like, this, like, giant breasts that are super unrealistic, and it's like, there should be more female video game characters and like the world of gaming needs to be diverse. And like people were sending her death threats and posting her address online and she had to move and it just turned into this whole ugly thing. And it That's kind of no pre reaction. Yeah. Kind of Christ. Yeah. And it kind of presaged like the, the modern world of indignant fan culture. And I really think it's because for so long, video games were this subculture and this niche thing. And if you were really into video gaming in the 90s or the late 80s, then you were, you know, maybe of a particular personality type and kind of isolative and unpopular and geeky and nerdy when that wasn't a cool thing to be. And this was your refuge. And this was the thing that you could turn to and this uh, thing that you could maybe share with a small core group of people. And this was yours. This was literally yours. And now all of a sudden video games explode. And if you're a gamer, you're maybe not necessarily the kid who, you know, couldn't get a date in high school. And so he's sitting in his wood paneled basement on an orange vinyl couch playing Super Mario Brothers on the original NES for the eighth time. You know, all of a sudden, you know, upwardly mobile professionals are playing video games. Women are playing video games. Uh, you know, there used to be this idea that uh, console gaming was like this, you know, exclusively male coded activity. And now you've got girls getting into video games and it's almost the sense of your special place has now had the doors opened up and everybody's coming in and now anybody can come in and do this thing that was once just yours 
And I feel that there was this sense of almost violation that a particular very aggressive stripe of the fan base lashed back hard against. And it almost served as a template for other fandoms to do the same thing. And it's almost like viral. Uh, It's Mm. almost like this mentality like mutated and became mimetic and like spread out from there. And that's why you see this behavior now, even in like very mass marketed, innocent things. I mean, you've got, you got toxic Marvel fans. I mean, Marvel is just like, I'm not a big fan myself, but it's not like something more subversive, like Rick and Morty, where I can see, okay, maybe this will have, you know, fans going online and telling people to fuck themselves. But you've got Marvel fans like at people's throats on Twitter. And it's like, why? Yeah, and it's this- do, do they not know how Stan Lee was as a person? The opposite of what he would want. Yeah, and so it's like this this culture of like possessiveness and indignation, like almost mutated. I think thanks in part to social media. Yeah, that's a that's that's you know (laughs) we keep getting these answers that I'm like I, I I'm hoping for like some kind of incisive thought on it and then i'm just sitting here nodding and yes 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 that, that's very that's 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 very very good you're absolutely We're not listeners, right man, man. <laughs> yeah exa- well sometimes i i put on that hat um but no that's, right that's now. thank you patrick for your contributions um no i i think that's that's very um it, it, yeah inc- i was going to say incisive again because i'm not you know doing good with the synonyms tonight um but just the idea of that kind of you know it reminds me of like when you'd discover a band and you felt like nobody else knows these guys you you you'd have your shirt on and people would ask you you know what that is and yeah you were proud of that you loved their music but you kind of wanted to keep it to yourself and then as soon as like if that blows up then all of a sudden you don't want that person who you know, maybe uh, does different after school activities than you or, you know, has a different, you know, whatever than you uh, to have that because it belongs to you. Um, and then, when- you know, like, oh, sir. And, and like you said, the whole idea that when these, you know, Star Wars movies and whatnot were originally released, they were for kind of a smaller audience and then they just became like the biggest you know movies in the world earning a billion dollars in the box office and whatnot um patrick unless you have a direction you'd like to go i was going to take us into currently reading thoughts go for it okay preston what are you currently reading i am currently reading the labyrinth of spirits which is the final book in a four book series called the uh, cemetery of forgotten books uh, and they're why they're originally written in Spanish. They were written by a guy named uh, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, uh, and they've uh, been translated into English and several other languages. As uh, statistically speaking, uh, they're some of the best-selling books in the world. And it's this kind of horror, kind of pulpy series. Uh, my wife got the first book in the series as a holiday gift from one of her coworkers. We started reading it on a road trip down to Houston to see her, uh, our families and we're just kind of blown away by it. And uh, all of the stories uh, center around this used bookstore in Franco era Barcelona. And the uh, the family that runs the bookstore keep finding themselves entangled in these uh quasi-supernatural mysteries that all revolve around horror novels. 
Uh, and each book in the series is centered around a different horror novel that the Semperi family stumbles across somehow. And then this has some major impact on their lives. Uh, like in the first book, uh, the, the son Daniel, as a young boy, reads this horror novel uh, called uh, Shadow of the Wind and becomes obsessed with tracking down the author and discovers that the author of this book disappeared and that after the author's disappearance, somebody started collecting and destroying all of this author's books. And the person responsible for destroying the books is this guy covered in third degree burns who claims to be the devil. And so this, this teenage boy sets out to try and uh, solve this mystery. And each of the subsequent books in the series revolves around different books that uh, the family find themselves coming across. And I'm reading the last one right now. Damn. That sounds cool as hell. They were they were they're fun. Brennan, what are you currently reading? Um, I am I just picked this off the shelf tonight. I'm going to reread Desperation. Uh oh, it's nice. been a very long time. Um I've forgotten a lot of it, but uh I don't know. Every every once in a while I just need to pick up uh, a king off the shelf and just kind of like cleanse the palate. Um, I am also, I only a little bit into this, but I'm reading Don Winslow's city of dreams, uh, which is out in April, I think. Yeah. April 23rd. Uh, I really, really loved the first one in the series. It was a city on fire. Um, and you know, obviously Patrick and I love it because it, 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 it takes place in Providence and you don't see a ton of stories that kind of, you know, come down from Boston in this area and focus on Providence. This one uh, goes on a little bit of a road trip, but still kind of has that same heart to it. Mm. Patrick, how about you? What are you reading? So um, I am currently reading, it's called Baker's Dozen. It's an anthology by uh, Candace Nola. Um, it's <laughs> just finished one uh, by Jeff Strand, which was hilarious. Uh, Aaron Beauregard. And then I'm on one by Carver Pike. But they're really good. They're like centered around, you know, bacon. And that sounds like it could be limited, but surprisingly <laughs> not. Um, that, I'm going to keep it at that. It's it's wacky. It's funny. It's just it's really it's a really fun anthology. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me, the mix of authors is refreshing. Um, not we could go on this forever, but like in the indie scene, there is a whole lot of anthologies and a lot of them have the same names. That's an issue that some of me and my friends have with uh, anthology. So I don't get super excited about a lot, but like when you find a good one, it's fantastic. And this is definitely one of those. Um, Preston, where can people follow you? I'm primarily on Twitter at, at Preston Fossil. And uh, you can uh, find my books at uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, order Beast to Forty Second Street directly through Cemetery Dance or uh, wherever books are sold. Running through social media, where can people follow you? I haven't given a silly answer on that in a while. Give me some mm. credit, man. Uh, <laughs> on various social medias at Brennan Lafaro because that's the easiest way. Follow me on Twitter, PR McDonough. The show at Dead Headspace. Uh, Preston, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I'm I'm really grateful to uh, Brian Keene and Kevin Lucia for uh, helping to you know get this finally into print, and I'm I'm really happy that's at Cemetery Dance, and I, I just hope this really excites the people who read it, and that it's not quite like anything that they've read before, 
and that it provides them with a unique horror reading experience. And that for those who are familiar with the, the type of horror literature that I'm attempting to uh, call back to, that it's, it resonates with them and it like strikes that chord for them. That's awesome. Uh, my final thoughts are I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, super fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I wouldn't even begin to think that anyone would reply the way you did. And, <laughs> and that's nothing but a compliment. Um, so thank, thank you, you for coming on. Yeah, man. Yeah. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Brennan. Yeah, no, I'll echo that. Thank you for your time. Thank you for hanging out with us on a Thursday night. Uh, and like we mentioned a couple times, uh, Beasts of 42nd Street came out on March 17th. It's been out for 10 days. As you listen to this, you can literally buy it right now. Uh, and one thing that we did not mention is it has a fantastic cover by Justin T. Coons. Um, yes. Really uh, does the book some nice justice. Justin was fantastic to work with. And the cover of that book really captures the vibe of the story and the way that I wanted readers to kind of see the world when they read this book and the way that it's, it's uh, very heavily inspired by uh, the aesthetics of uh, 1970s exploitation posters. I, I, If I designed a book cover, it would look like crap. I have no artistic inclination. And Justin asked me for a kind of lookbook. Uh, he read the book and then he had me send him images and I sent him like old exploitation movie posters and uh, the book itself. It's all leading up to the 1977 New York blackout. I sent him uh, photos of rioting during the blackout. Uh, and he just took all of this and synthesized it into this wonderful cover and of his own accord uh, dropped in all these Easter eggs. Uh, the uh, If you look at the, the cover, the right side of the cover, the background is melting uh, film reel. And he, stru he structured the cover so that the head you see at the top of the cover, the title of the book, and then the disclaimer at the bottom form an inverted cross. And he did this to like subconsciously get the re the viewer thinking of an inverted cross. Uh, I think That's that like smart. Yeah, it was great. I think the one the two contributions I had were I said that I wanted a skull in there somewhere. And that I wanted the old Times Square advertising disclaimer at the bottom. Uh, the very first movie to do this was Last House on the Left with the, oh. ad, the ad campaign of to avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. And then all these other movies ripped that off and stuck that on the posters for their movies. And so at the bottom of the cover for this book, you see to avoid fainting, just keep repeating. It's only a book. It's only a book. It's only a book. And it really ties it together to make it into this, this literary equivalent of an exploitation poster. Absolutely. Um, worth pointing out that Preston also wrote a nonfiction book. Uh, it's called Landis, the story of a real man on 42nd street. I uh, would look into that too. It would probably pair pretty damn well with, with this one. <laughs> um, Thank you for listening. Preston, thank you. Brennan, thank you. And uh, everyone, next episode 193 will be with Nathan D. Ludwig. Till then, you have many choices in the podcast. Thanks for taking us. Uh -huh.